0: We've been hearing a lot about artificial intelligence lately, and let's face it, it can be confusing and intimidating, bringing up questions ranging from what is it, how does it work, what are applications in healthcare going to look like, and is it going to take away my job? Our guest this week is Sunandini Chopra, a PhD level scientist from MIT, actively engaged in AI at IBM Watson and founder of the group AI for the Rest of Us. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Sunandini, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Joseph. But The pleasure is all mine. Could you tell us
0: about AI for the rest of us? I think this sounds very exciting and useful for those of us, particularly in healthcare, where we hear AI is going to be making such an impact. How did this start? Uh, What do you do? And personally, what's your background? And how did you come to this
1: AI for the rest of us for those uh, who are not familiar with it? uh, It's a meetup group. It's a community based out of the Boston Cambridge area. And we are right now a virtual community of over 700 people. And the way this group came together really was when some of my friends and I, we started reading, so we followed news and healthcare. And as you just mentioned, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of potential for machine learning applications to make a positive impact in healthcare. So the news just sort of exploded in that space. I joined, um, uh, I joined a company uh, professionally that works in the AI space and Uh, And my friends, we all started reading about these pieces of information coming out in the news and we got very intrigued. And we wanted to understand more about what was happening because as you would know, artificial intelligence is something that has been around for decades. And we were curious to know and understand and learn really that why this is happening now and how much of it is actually true on the ground. So with that objective in mind, we brought together a group of like-minded individuals in the Boston Cambridge community. And we reached out to individuals in academia, industry, researchers, startup, uh, entrepreneurs, to really share with us some of the actual work that they were doing and the impact that they were making just so that we could separate what we were reading in news articles as opposed to what was actually happening on the ground. So that sort of led us to start this group. And as you would understand from the name, it's called AI for the rest of us. The goal was very education focused and awareness focused. So we wanted to make it open to people from different backgrounds they could be software engineers, data analysts, healthcare professionals, researchers. So really the goal was to bring together like-minded people to learn more about how machine learning algorithms are being used in uh, in patient care or research and basically in the healthcare space uh, from the people who are actually uh, working on it.
0: Like you said, a lot of people understand roughly what AI is and they understand of course, what healthcare is specifically let's talk about what applications of ai and healthcare are going to look like and i think a, a good place to start would maybe be the doctor patient encounter clearly the physician is not going to be replaced overnight by some sort of robot so what's it going to look like some of the early applications
1: i mean in terms of the early applications that are being created and what is out there in my understanding and in my perspective is that a lot of value is being Uh, generated for frontline clinicians and helping them being more productive, and also sort of the back end processes making them more efficient. But I would categorize applications in the healthcare space, AI applications in the healthcare space in the following three categories. So clinical, operational and administrative. And the way I look at it is that from a clinical standpoint, these are obviously the more impactful but also more challenging applications such as clinical decision support at the point of care, Uh, You're having preliminary diagnosis using image analysis. There are solutions that um, are helping understand dosage errors uh, and detecting that. There are solutions that are helping surface errors that are being made by image analysis and certain radiologists at some time. So these are the clinical applications. For the operational ones, I would uh, focus on some of the work that is being done in robotic-assisted surgery, virtual nursing assistants and a lot of work in the clinical trial management space. And uh, lastly, in the administrative section, where actually the most progress has been made in the AI space, is really in understanding variation in care across organizations, helping with reporting and benchmarking so that physicians can uh, perform at the top of the license. So really I look at the impact that machine learning can have is really across these three categories of clinical, operational and administrative uh, processes.
0: AI is roughly defined as, or a key component of it is that it's a system that is capable of learning or evolving and incorporating new information into future decisions. And one thing in healthcare that's quite prominent is the regulatory aspect. So could you talk about what that's going to look like, because I think what many people might be concerned about is this black box aspect of it, and even how is it possible to regulate something which is continually changing or evolving?
1: That's a great question. Uh, regulation is a complex part of these AI systems, and honestly, something that is still being continued to understand, to be understood well. Uh, there are many aspects of the regulatory process that continue to remain unclear. For example, the size of the training data sets, like what's the right number there? How can uh, future data sets be, uh, the quality of those data be maintained? How do these solutions continue to have FDA approval as new data sets are being incorporated into the training models? And you know the list goes on. And unfortunately, we do not have answers to all of those questions. But what I can say is that progress has been made. People are continuing to work on this. Uh, the FDA is currently regulating solutions that are providing a diagnostic uh, reading or surfacing errors and image analysis, basically anything to do with uh, like a patient diagnosis or making a direct clinical uh, judgment. Those solutions are being uh, regulated by the FDA. We do not have a perfect regulatory framework at the moment, but I can tell you that we are working on getting there.
0: Early applications may be more focused on, in pharma, for example, drug discovery and development of new compounds, where machine learning can facilitate the discovery of novel compounds and so on but not necessarily once the product is launched
1: so once the product is launched there is scope for improvement there as well so as you said machine learning is definitely making an impact in the drug discovery and um, the development space but one area where i do see some impact where um, even post-launch where machine learning can make an impact is in the observational study space so what happens is that newly launched drugs uh, often after successful phase three trials. uh, They sometimes have observational trial obligations where they have to monitor adverse events and efficacy um, among patients in the real world in a non-clinical trial um, environment. And this space is fairly disorganized and could greatly benefit from digitization and machine learning and automation as we are speaking. What happens really is that machine learning here can play a role in in really identifying for what patient cohorts and subgroups is that particular molecule or that drug really effective how we can sort of quantify certain adverse events in certain subgroups so we can we have a more agile process where as we are learning about the efficacy and adverse events among patients in the real world we take that data and really come up with better uh, uh, models so people can understand which patient uh, populations really af- get benefited from that molecule so there are ways of sort of incorporating these uh, algorithms even post launch unfortunately a lot of that a lot of that hasn't been done yet but there is scope for improvement there but going back to what you were saying i think Applications that are more prominent right now are certainly in research and development, and there is a gamut there in early discovery, basic R&D, in clinical trial management, and going on to commercialization. There are various applications. And then on the other side, which is on the clinical care side, applications right now are focused where they are providing uh, support and helping in decision-making and not being the source of the decision. So it's basically augmenting human expertise and medical expertise.
0: Could you explain to us what are patient avatars, which appears to be a very useful concept in discovering new compounds and facilitating and expediting the drug discovery process, where we don't have to experiment, so to speak, on humans, but can somewhat virtualize the process?
1: Patient avatars are more like patient profiles based on the available genotypic and phenotypic data of both episodic and life care instances of a patient. And there are efforts that are being made to make these avatars richer by including information about their social determinants of health, demographic information, and so on. And these avatars, as you mentioned, are being used to understand how drugs are impacting patients outside the controlled environment of a clinical trial setting. And that information is being used to sort of provide information and knowledge around which patients are experiencing and getting maximum efficacy, what kind of adverse events are being experienced in, in what comorbidities, and basically fueling and helping understand like biomarkers for targeted treatments. All of this information that is being used from these avatars is opening, I believe, a new area of clinical trials. Uh, it's called uh, the control arm, the virtual control arm, where you you know you you are not dividing section of patients uh, by the treatment molecule, and instead uh, and and not giving them placebo, and instead using a set of data to understand what the baseline, what the demographic baseline is, and using that information to understand how effective uh, a new molecule or a new drug uh, target modality is.
0: So when we utilize this type of approach. Is it a matter of, I mean, certainly AI is going to allow us, particularly if we don't have to use actual patients, but is it simply going to allow us to conduct many more experiments in parallel? That is, analyzing more compounds, utilizing patient avatars, and expanding our ability to run experiments that will lead to better outcomes? Or are we going to be able to do something in a materially different way than we've been able to do before using traditional methodologies and biostatistics.
1: I certainly agree that this whole area of patient avatars and uh, remote patient clinical trial arms, that is an area which is going to add immensely to the drug research and development process. And all of us, patients, pharma companies, Uh, providers, everyone is going to benefit from that in the long run. But I would also want to say that the concept of human discovery and the scientific method of thinking that has been used for decades and eons uh, is not going anywhere. It will continue to be valued and be the fundamental way for research and advancements. The opportunity to accelerate discovery will continue to be important. I mean, there is always a race to to launch first, to be the first. i mean people had running races in the past and when they discovered cars they have car races so there will always be uh, there'll, there'll always be a race to be the first but what i can say is that using machine learning using digitization and automation and running as you said these massively parallel experiments using control arms that are driven by data, uh, they will help us accomplish uh, the goals that we want to in terms of getting treatments to patients faster, getting molecules approved faster. But I have to say that machine learning alone will not accomplish it. We need to improve and develop the entire ecosystem uh, around it. We have to work with policymakers, we have to work with insurers, uh it's as you as you know healthcare is an extremely complex uh system and we have to make sure that we look at it from a holistic uh, way rather than just one sliver of one technology that can make this impact
0: now speaking of massively parallel that's another word for uh what's described as next-gen sequencing we're all familiar with the human genome project uh, which was this race to sequence a human genome and it took a very long amount of time over 13 years and over 3 billion dollars. One of the key technologies uh, was moving away from uh, the old methods of sequencing, Sanger sequencing and so forth towards these massively parallel methods. So what do you think that would look like today uh, using AI?
1: It would look very different. The Human Genome Project is a remarkable feat accomplished by uh, by our time, uh, by our our civilization. Uh, I do think it would look very differently today. I mean, the themes that come to my mind really are the ability to scale, the ability to do rapid data analysis, a faster insight generation. I mean, these are things that come to mind uh, when I think about the Human Genome Project in today's time, And certainly we would hopefully would have gotten to uh, the outcome that we did um, in a a faster period of time. Approximately the 3 billion base pairs that make up the human genome can be analyzed now using machine learning algorithms to find uh, genetic variations much faster. And a lot of it it is actually being done as we speak. The next area where a lot of focus is being placed is uh, trying to really understand the level of confidence and the level of evidence to be placed in the deferring data to decide if it represents a biologic, biologic genetic variation, variant or not. And these are really areas where we can uh, leverage natural language processing and the ability to go through large texts uh, in a short period of time. I mean, the, the Human Genome Project has accomplished so much, but there is so much more that we can extract from that uh, information and the data that's out there. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that whatever we've achieved so far, there's there's even more that we can get out of that with the newer algorithms that are being developed currently. I
0: agree, it's, it's been very exciting, but I think we're just at the very beginning. The sequencing of the human genome got a lot of press and publicity, but I think once we've did that, we reached a point where we realized we had no idea what the significance of perhaps even most of the variants that we found are, and even learned for the first time that genetic variants were in fact very frequent. The next frontier perhaps may be a variant interpretation, as you suggested, and finding out what the significance of these variants is, both at a patient level and a population level. So what do you think that's going to look like?
1: That is an area which is actually extremely complex, which is why we want to use these AI applications to simplify that and, and make it richer, in fact. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, work that is actually being done currently by companies out there to rapidly and swiftly classify um, uh, and categorize and annotate these variants. And then for the interpretation process, really um, natural language processing has been used to create a knowledge base of existing fda approved therapies, clinical trials that are happening, and and pulling that information, uh, associating mutations and variants with clinically actionable insights. Uh, so that's the space that's actually growing rapidly in the genomic uh, interpretation space as you would know like secondary interpretation is is pretty basic and there's a lot of work that's already been done the sh- the shift has been moved now to tertiary interpret interpretation which is your genomic uh, interpretation where you can really add value in understanding the level of evidence of, of variants and uh, and rapidly i mean swiftly and in a scalable manner associating them with actionable uh, interpretation and that's the way to go forward and that's the way we can make uh, genomic sequencing testing more available when you can reduce the time to interpretation and make this a faster and quicker test.
0: This is very exciting times. And I think it's great news, I think, for us in in healthcare to see that finally we're able to apply these technologies and computing power to to our challenges. Now, when I was a child, I remember watching the Jetsons as many of us did. This show set at some point, a cartoon set at some point in in the future where most of their tasks were performed uh, by robots and it was a life of ease and comfort. Notoriously, predictions about the future are often very wrong, you know, don't actually turn out the way we thought they would. Why is that?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've, I've watched Jetsons growing up, and at the same time, uh, I used to watch Flintstones. They used to play in the same lifetime. So, I mean, as a child, I watched both of them and was fascinated equally by both of them. To this question, I want to actually share a philosophical perspective. There is always a conflict that I personally face as well, coming from India, growing up in India, that whether I should work on cutting-edge discoveries and research and solutions or work on making existing advancements more accessible to others. So with the limited resources that one has, you can either make cutting-edge progress to uh, to its limit or you can really help in making existing discoveries more accessible to the people who don't have access to them. We could very well have a city or or a country like the Jetsons where everything is extremely high tech and extremely automated. You have robots serving you food and whatnot. But at the same time, what we have to realize is that we could also bring about moderate improvements while impacting a lot more people. So it's really a question about What are the resources that are available? And what is the impact that you want to create? And that's a question I've always asked myself uh, when I take up an opportunity, a project, a job. Given that we have more have-nots in the world, I think we have achieved quite a lot in making moderate improvement that has impacted more people. Um, But I'm hopeful for the Jetsons world in the future. But at the same time, I would wish that we do what we are doing that is lifting everyone and taking everyone forward as opposed to taking one county or one country and making it the Jetsons world
0: I like that it is sort of a a philosophical question and my take is that it's also impossible to to separate out human nature uh from the equation I think that's perhaps where we go wrong and to discount disparate standards of living in the world and I think maybe what we're after is not a drive towards comfort and ease, but rather of solving problems and making life better for everyone. With AI and the introduction of technology in healthcare, there always seems to be, and other fields too, there always seems to be this concern that AI is going to take away your job or your livelihood, which is going to result paradoxically somehow in a lower standard of living. Is this a valid concern that uh, people's jobs are going to be taken away by uh, advances in technology?
1: My perspective on this is that it is not. And history has shown that it is not, and history has shown this time and again. For example, we can look at the industrial revolution. So there were similar concerns around loss of jobs with automation and mass manufacturing, but new jobs were created and there was a reorganization of jobs and skills within the market. And I believe that the same will happen. So I hope that everyone is constantly learning, constantly uh, acquiring new skills, constantly keeping abreast with new technologies. But as long as people are doing that, I don't see um, there be a reduction in jobs. There will certainly be a reorganization of jobs and skills in the market.
0: (laughs) Well, Suna Chopra, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. How can people learn more about you and AI for the rest of us?
1: Yeah, um, please to everyone who's listening to this podcast, uh, We have a website called aifortherestofus.com. Please reach out to us there. We host uh, periodic events in the Boston Cambridge community. Join us, you can find information on that website. There is a contact us page there. You can reach out to us. Uh, But if you want to directly get in touch with me, my email is just my first name, last name at gmail.com. So Sunandani chopra at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to, get coffee and a conversation about these topics with anyone who's interested.
0: Our guest has been Sunandini Chopra from AI for the Rest of Us. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast.